This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, it's a privilege to be here and to be connected to this uh, Burke Lectureship. I, um, it's the privilege of my life for 30 years uh, to have worked with uh, gang members and to uh, find my heart realigned and uh, my life altered forever uh, because of the thousands of men and women I've been privileged to know. Uh, people like Joey Ray, a guy who um, I met when he got out of uh, Mule Creek State Prison and he came to work at Homeboy and he went through our phases in our 18-month program and at some point he uh, you know, was called upon to give talks and, and he was quite good and then he was in demand and he was... Uh, uh, you know, this was a gift he discovered he had. And then so one night we went out to dinner and he was giving me tips on how to speak publicly. <clears throat> and he said, you know, you got to pepper your talk with self-defecating humor. <laughs> and I said, yeah, no shit. Thank uh, you, you anticipated so, uh, so brace yourselves. Um, so, I, you know, I, I know a lot of people here, and a lot of you have heard me speak before, and uh, uh, that always kind of undoes me a little bit. And YouTube is weird because, you know, people see you and hear you. And, and once I went to this foster grandparent gathering, a huge gathering in Southern California, they gathered every summer. And they invited me the second summer. I had just spoken there the summer before. I don't know why they did it again, but it was like same people, you know. So I gave the talk, and afterwards a foster grandmother came up to me, and I think she liked the talk. She had big tears in her eyes, and she grabbed both my hands, and she said, I heard you last year. It never gets better. So, kind of hoping she misspoke there. But. So anyway, I, I think what, what we're about here is, uh, is that we're, we're trying to imagine the world to look differently than it currently looks. And, and so we want to make God's dream come true and somehow identify what that dream is. We want to ask ourselves, what, what is the thing that really quenches God's thirst Mother Teresa diagnosed the world's ills correctly when she suggested that the problem in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? How do we imagine a circle of compassion and then imagine nobody standing outside that circle? How do we dismantle the barriers that exclude how do we inch our way out to the margins as Pope Francis always invites us to go? Because if you go to the margins, if you stand there, you look under your feet, the margins are getting erased because you chose to locate yourself there. And you stand with the kind of intentionality and particularity. You stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. You stand with those whose dignity has been denied. And you stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. 
And every once in a while, everybody in this room has had the privileged moment to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out, with the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop, and with the disposable, so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And I suspect if kinship happened to always be our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice. We'd be celebrating it. For no kinship, no peace. No kinship, no justice. No kinship, no equality. It turns out those worthy goals are a byproduct of our kinship. And if we stand against forgetting that we belong to each other, we end up realizing those things and God's thirst is quenched. And you go to the margins and you brace yourselves because people will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. And so we always want to go from a lecture like this so that other voices get heard ultimately. I think everything depends on our sense of who God is. I'm a Jesuit, so, uh, and Ignatius used to always say, take care to keep always before your eyes first God. And Ignatius always talked about the God who's always greater. He didn't want us to settle for a lesser God. Uh, the homies have taught me so much, and usually they do it by way of kind of this um, charming and disarming and illuminating mangling of the English language that I always uh, appreciate. Like I had this homegirl named Lisa uh, come into my office. She wanted to introduce her man to me, and uh, she was a trainee, a gang member, and, and her man came to pick her up, and she said, this is my sufficient other. <laughs> no, no doubt. Uh, uh, one of the things that allows me to, to be here is that I, I, um, I have a CEO named Tom Volsa who runs a Homeboy, and we're a $19 million annual operation. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, it's nice not to have to worry about cash flow. He does, you know. And so I had a homie come into my office, and um, he said, Damn, gee, my lady, she is in a bad mood today. And I said, Why? Ah, uh, well, you know, she's beginning her administration period. I said, Well, I just finished mine, so uh, I kind of know what she's going through. Uh, but my favorite one happened when I was presiding at Mass at uh, San Fernando Juvenile Hall. And it was a big gym and about 500 kids and almost all gang members. And uh, all but like 10 were, there were 10 girls there, but the rest were guys. And so I had the little sheet that has the readings in English and in Spanish, the little oja. And so I, I was vested. I was, had my owl and my stole on and I was sitting on this folded folding chair and I and I said well I'm going to listen to the word proclaimed so I, I put the sheet on my lap and I closed my eyes and the homies got up and they read the first reading and the 
and whatever. And the psalm, the kid got up to read the psalm, and with an overabundance of confidence, he said, The Lord is exhausted. (laughs) And I looked at the sheet, what the hell? And it said, the Lord is exalted. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, that's way better. Because when you think about the exalted God, you you have to know that somehow that's our own projection. You know, that's when we've created God in our own image is when we we were the exalted God, you know. Anne Lamott says that you know you've created God in your own image when God hates the same people you do. <laughs> but I like the exhausted God. You know, it's, it's like, you know, when somebody says, how are you feeling? I'm so tired. But it's a good tired. You know what that is. You know, I had the grandkids all weekend or I helped my friend move into her apartment. Whatever. But it's a good tired. Why? Well, it's the feeling of self-extension. It's, it's the feeling of expending yourself for the other. It's soaked with a sense of cherishing that's just wonderful and way better than exalted. Who wants to spend eternity with an exalted God? I don't. You know, but an exhausted one, that's kind of interesting. You know? <clears throat> when Our understanding of God leaves us feeling cherished. We know we've wandered into the vicinity of the God we actually have. But the truth is we've settled for a partial God, a lesser God. Yeah, you know, the more realistic God. Um, I have two odd examples of that, I think. But I, I pose them as an invitation to be on the lookout for the God we actually have and the God we've settled for. Because it won't make any sense to stand at the margins unless you can feel yourself cherished by the God we actually have. So Dylan Roof kills uh, those people in the Bible study at Mother Emanuel Church And a week or so later, family members are standing in front of him, family members of the victims, and they forgive him. And everyone knew we were in the presence of the God we actually have. But then nine months later, they sentence him to die, and people say his execution will be God's justice. And you know that's the God we've settled for. That's the partial God. That's the lesser God. Eh, you know, that's the more realistic God. This is a weird example, but it struck me during uh, the World Series uh, when they were playing in, Dodgers were playing in Houston. And in the seventh inning stretch, do you recall? People stood up and it says, I stand with, and they wrote the name of somebody who has cancer. My mom, I stand with my mom. And I stand with my kid sister. And I stand with my cousin Louie. 
Who can be against such a thing? Which is one of the reasons why that's sort of an example of the God we've settled for. It's not controversial. I have cancer. I don't want anybody to stand with me. I'll be honest with you. The God we actually have would nudge us to say, I stand with dreamers. I stand with undocumented felons. I stand with heroin addicts. I stand with refugees. I stand with women trapped in domestic violence situations or in sex trafficking. Now, God has interest in that because that is the God we actually have. That's not a list of liberal progressive motifs. That's a list of folks at the margins. I think that's an important thing as we grow in understanding of the God who's always greater. Otherwise, we settle. So uh, the homies have taught me so much, and they've taught me about kinship. They've taught me about connection. And they've taught me how to reimagine uh, the circle widening so that nobody is outside of it. But in the last uh, 10 years, they've taught me how to text, and I am so grateful to them because (laughs) I find it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. And I'm pretty good at it, LOL and OMG and BTW, and the homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. (laughs) And I've been using that one quite a bit lately. (laughs) I know I can't be alone in being vexed by this autocorrect thing, you know, so uh, uh, I had a homegirl named Bertha one Sunday say, uh, where are you at? And I said, I'm about to speak to a room full of monjas, and monjas is Spanish for sisters, nuns, about to speak to a room full of monjas. I pushed send. Autocorrect told her I was about to speak to a room full of ninjas. <laughs> which, which she thought was pretty darn interesting. Uh, the homies, even now, you know, uh, I, I'm so glad I powered this off because it's like, oh, they're going to cut off my lights and I just need this much for my rent and uh, on on and on. <clears throat> and once a homie needed just $100 to finish off his rent, I didn't have it. <clears throat> so I texted him, things are tight. <laughs> I pushed send, autocorrect told him, thongs are tight. <laughs> And he wrote back, sorry to hear that. (laughs) Uh, What about my rent? You know, so. So anyway, there I am in a car with two older vatos, Manuel and Poncho, and we're driving to a high school in Palm Desert. They're going to help me give a talk. And, um, you know, been to prison and, and do a variety of things at Homeboy. Manuel's in the front seat. We're 15 minutes on the road when he gets an incoming text, and uh, he, he chuckles. And I say, what is it? Oh, it's dumb. It's from Snoopy back at the office. Well, i just seen Snoopy. Snoopy greeted me as the day began. Snoopy and Manuel worked together in the clock-in room where they clock in hundreds and hundreds of our workers. 
It's a tough job. I actually wouldn't want it because this may come as a surprise. Gang members can occasionally be attitudinal. <laughs> so they can have their job. So, um, so I said, Manuel, what is it? And he goes, oh, let me find it. It's really dumb. Okay, here it is. Hey, dog, it's me, Snoops. Yeah, they got my ass locked up at county jail. They're charging me with being the ugliest vato in America. You have to come down right now, show them they got the wrong guy. (laughs) Well, I nearly drove into oncoming traffic. We just, (laughs) the three of us, we laughed so damn hard. And then I realized that Manuel and Snoopy are enemies. They're from rival gangs. They used to shoot bullets at each other because I remember But now they shoot text messages. And there's a word for that, and the word is kinship. How do we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate, that there is an us and a them? You know, all of us are engaged in service. All of our kids are engaged in service. All of our grandkids are engaged in service. This is decidedly a good thing. But service is where you begin. The problem comes if if you end there, because there's a distance in service, you know. You want to make sure there is no daylight. You want to arrive at some exquisite mutuality. That's the point of going to the margins. Um, One of the great privileges of my life was knowing Cesar Chavez as a friend. And he was uh, the best listener I've ever met in my life. If you were talking to him, I don't know how he did it. It was laser beam focused. Nobody else existed. He was never looking over your shoulder to see if someone more important was on the approach. But once, famously, a reporter had commented to him and said, wow, these farm workers, they sure love you. And Cesar just shrugged and smiled and said, the feeling's mutual. And indeed it is. At Homeboy Industries, I'm not the great healer, and that gang member over there is in need of my exquisite healing. The truth be told, we're all a cry for help. We're all in need of healing. This is one of the things that connects us and unites us as members of the human family. So that there is no daylight that separates us. And no homie found more job opportunities than a kid we all called Dreamer. I knew him from the housing projects in my parish, Pico Gardens housing projects. Smart kid, super intelligent though I don't recall that he ever attended school, um, a dangerous sense of humor that I just loved. Love, because he's uh, in his 40s and has a house and wife and kids, and he's doing well now. But in his early 20s, he was kind of a yo-yo, in and out of being locked up, and um, I'd find him a job in the private sector or in one of our enterprises, and he'd always gravitate back to vague criminality, something involving drugs, the sale of or the use of, and then he'd wander back to me. This was a period that kept repeating itself. And so um, this one time he got out of uh, county jail, a four-month probation violation, and he says what homies often say, this time it'll be different. And I said, well, all right, so... Like a man, so I, you know, I called a friend of mine named Gary who owned a vending machine company in Alhambra. He had hired homies in the past. Maybe I'm thinking he'll do it again. 
Sure enough, he says, you tell that guy he can start tomorrow. That's a holy man right there. So Dreamer began work the very next day at the vending machine company. Two weeks later, there he is again in front of my desk. And, I, you know, I really could not believe it. I said, híjole, madre santa, here we go all over again. But this time he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out his paycheck and he waves it proudly. He says, damn, gee, this paycheck makes me feel proper. I mean, my mom, she's proud of me and my kids, they're not ashamed of me. And you know who I have to thank for this job. And I said, well, who? And he looked at me funny. He said, well, God, of course. I said, oh, sure, no. That, that would be God, yeah. You thought I was going to say you. I said, no, no, gosh, God's number one, yeah. He said, you are so lucky we're not living in them Genesis days. I'm sorry, them Genesis days? He goes, yeah, because God would have been had struck down your ass already by now, he said. (laughs) And the thing I most remember was uh, we just fell out of our chairs laughing. And I defy you to identify exactly who's the service provider, who's the service recipient. I don't know. It's mutual. So Homeboy Industries was born a long time ago, 1988, uh, when I was pastor of the poorest parish in the city of Los Angeles, Dolores Mission, nestled in the middle of two public housing projects, Pico Gardens and Aliso Village. Uh, We had eight gangs at war with each other, which was unheard of in public housing, making it, according to the LAPD, the place of the highest concentration of gang activity in all of Los Angeles was my parish. L.A. County, there are 120,000 gang members currently and 1,100 gangs. (coughs) I buried my first young person killed because of this sadness in 1988, and I buried my 222nd two weeks ago. Not all from that community, obviously, but I know a lot of gang members. I get asked to do this. The first thing we did was we started a school because there were so many middle school, junior high-aged gang members who had been given the boot from their home school. Nobody wanted them. So they were wreaking havoc in the projects during the day and night and violent and selling drugs and writing on the walls. So I would go out to them and I'd isolate them and I'd call them away from the group. I'd say, hey, you know, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And to my surprise, every single one said, yeah. And then I, I... couldn't find a school that would take them, you know, so, so that kind of forced my hand. So across the street from the church is our uh, parochial school and uh, grades K to 8, the first two floors. But the entire third floor was the convent where the ninjas lived. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I gathered all the nuns together in the living room and I sat them down and I said, look, you know, would you guys mind you know, moving out, and, um, and we could uh, turn the convent into a school for gang members, you know, and they looked at each other, and then they looked at me, and they said, sure, 
And that was the extent of their discernment process. And um, then, uh, then they came in large numbers to the to church property, which begged this question. Uh, people in the parish started to say, wait a minute, aren't churches supposed to be hermetically sealed? You know, good people in and bad people out. And so I thought that was a good gospel challenge. And then uh, the homies who came to our school said, if only we had jobs. So myself and the women in the parish, we marched around the uh, factories that surrounded the housing projects trying to find felony-friendly employers, and that wasn't so forthcoming. So we invented things. We had a maintenance crew, a landscaping crew. We had a crew to a graffiti removal crew. We had a crew to um, build our child care center. And then, in, uh, all made up of enemy rival gang members. In 1992, after the Rodney King verdict, the whole city of Los Angeles exploded, and uh, every pocket of poverty ignited itself, except my parish. So the LA Times wanted to know why, and uh, so they asked me, and I said, well, maybe it's because we had 60 strategically hired rival enemy gang members working together. So they had a reason to get up in the morning and a reason not to gangbang the night before and a reason not to torch their own community. So uh, a movie producer named Ray Stark read this article and he summoned me and he happened to have $500 million. And he said, what should I do with my money? And I looked back now and I, I can see that I woefully undershot my request. So I said, why don't you buy this bakery across the street from the, the school, and it's got ovens. We can put hairnets on rival enemy gang members, and they can bake bread, and we'll, we can call it Homeboy Bakery. And that was the extent of my business plan. And he said, sure. And so we were off and running. A month later, we started Homeboy Tortillas in the Grand Central Market in downtown L.A. Once we had plural, we changed our name from Jobs for a Future to Homeboy Industries, as if there was any industry involved in this. Um, Not everything worked. Homeboy Plumbing really was not hugely successful. (laughs) Who knew uh, people didn't want gang members in their homes? I... I did not see that coming. <laughs> and nobody ever intends to do this, but you, we backed our way now, evolved our way into being, becoming the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on our planet. So 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors. <clears throat> and, um, and the centerpiece is our 18-month training program, and they all want a piece of that because that's... Uh, uh, it's a paid gig. And, uh, and the only folks we accepted to the program are serious and violent offending uh, gang members who want to hang up their gloves and imagine something different. So part of their program is that we have therapy. Everybody's in therapy. We have five paid therapists and 42 volunteer therapists. Uh, everybody has case, a case manager. Uh, we have curricular offerings from anger management and parenting, all the things you'd expect. We have lots of educational things. I still have a school. Uh, free tattoo removal, no place uh, 
on the planet removes more tattoos than we do. We have a designated clinic uh, in our headquarters. Uh, we have one paid physician assistant, and we have uh, 47 volunteer doctors, all certified. Um, 36,000 treatments a year, uh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Uh, and it was all, you know, if you go to the margins and you listen, people will tell you what ought to happen. Uh, the strategy presented in the gospel, the one of Jesus, is, is to listen to the folks at the margins. Humility asks the question, what would help? Humility says, here's what your problem is. Here's how you fix yourself. And so if you listen, the folks at the margins will tell you what they need. So tattoo removal was simply born because of a guy named Frank who wandered out of Corcoran State Prison. Uh, two days out of prison, he shows up, sits in front of my desk. I'd never met him before. And tattooed on his forehead, filling the entire space like a damn billboard are the words, and pardon my French, but it says, the world... And he says, you know, I am having a hard time finding a job. <laughs> I said, well, Frank, maybe we could put our heads together on this one. <laughs> so naturally, I hired him, and he bagged bread for a long time. And, uh, and I found a doc at White Memorial Hospital who had a laser machine, and he uh, chipped away at Frank's forehead. And and a handful of others, and pretty soon we had a list, a waiting list of 3,000 gang members who wanted the same treatment, so we couldn't stay with that arrangement. A parenthesis, Frank is a security guard at a movie studio in Hollywood, and there is no trace left of the angriest, dumbest thing he had ever done, proving once and for all, as Sister Helen Prejean says, we're all a whole lot more than the worst things we've ever done. And so we have all our training programs and enterprises. Uh, we have solar panel installation training program. That's a hugely successful place and uh, certifies uh, folks. And 85% of them get jobs after our training. Um, we have Homeboy Diner in City Hall, the only place you can get food. Homeboy Bakery. Homeboy Homegrown Merchandise, where we sell our logo stuff online and in our store. Homeboy Silkscreen, Homeboy Bakery. Homeboy Recycling, which is uh, e-waste. Uh, if you travel LAX ever, Terminal 4, American Airlines, we have uh, a restaurant there. Homeboy Grocery, um, where we have uh, chips, salsa, and guacamole that we sell in a lot of supermarkets, Ralph's principally, from... Uh, I'm smiling because from San Luis Obispo to San Diego. So we got a call once from the manager of a Ralph's in La Jolla. Um, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, but he said, some woman came and said, I'm completely offended that you sell uh, homeboy chips. And uh, the manager just touched her arm and said, you should leave La Jolla more often, she said. <laughs> Which is a surprising tact, you know. <laughs> and uh, we have Homegirl Cafe, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses, with attitude, will gladly take your order. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it's kind of a who's who. If you go there, you'll run into all sorts of uh, people. Uh, Jim Carrey, movie stars, you know, uh, Jack Black, Forrest Whitaker, elected officials. Once the entire Dodgers came, that was pandemonium. Um, once with only two hours notice, uh, a Secret Service called and said that Vice President Joe Biden wanted to have lunch at the famous Homegirl Cafe. He was vice president at the time. And, um, you know, motorcade, entourage, selfies with Uncle Joe. I wasn't there. I was making my annual silent retreat. And um, when I got back, a homie named Louis Mora um, it gave me the debrief. You know, he said, while you were gone, we were visited by the vice president of the United States, Mick Romney. <laughs> Which I think you can file that under all white guys look alike. <clears throat> and I, I think we added a current affairs class shortly thereafter. But most famously of all, Diane Keaton showed up for lunch, and she Oscar fame and movie star and, and uh, Godfather movies. So her waitress is Glenda, and Glenda's a big girl, been there, done that tattooed, felon gang member. She has no idea who Diane Keaton is, and Diane Keaton, uh, she goes to take her order, and Diane Keaton says, um, well, what would you suggest? And Glenda rattles off the three dishes that she particularly likes, and and Diane Keaton says, I'll have that second one. That sounds really good. And it's at that moment something dawns on Glenda. She looks at Diane Keaton. She says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you from somewhere. You know, like maybe we've met. And Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I suppose I have one of those faces that people think they've seen before. And, and then Glenda goes, no, now I know we were locked up together. <clears throat> yeah, that just took my breath away. I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings now that I think of it. But suddenly, kinship so quickly, Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress, exactly what God had in mind. And I suppose we need go no further than just hearing Jesus speak to the gathered, that you may be one. That's the thing that quenches God's thirst. Our connection and kinship, our exquisite mutuality, where there is no daylight that separates us. In the original covenantal relationship, God says, as I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential care for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And God has identified this, these subgroupings of the poor who stand for something. They stand for people who know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they have suffered in this particular way, God thinks they are trustworthy guides to lead the rest of us to the kinship of God. We don't go to the margins to make a difference. We go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make us different 
It's not about saving people or rescuing people. There are guides, not the recipients of our largesse. A home uh, for a, a hardcore gang intervention worker, former gang member himself in Houston, um, asked me. I was speaking there, and he's and he works with gang members on the streets. And he goes, "How do you reach them?" And I said, "For starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them?" And that's way different. That turns everything on its head. That says the folks at the margins are your trustworthy guides. They'll get you there. It's like the provocatively titled book by John Sobrino, No Salvation Outside the Poor. And we know what he means. You know, Whoopi Goldberg was interviewed a QA and a in, uh, in Vanity Fair. And uh, they asked her, what living person do you most admire? And she could have said a, a billion people, but she said, Pope Francis. And then she adds this, yeah, he's going with the original program. <laughs> and everybody knows what the original program is. It's not a Catholic thing. It's not a Christian thing. Even atheists know what the original program is. You're drawn to it. You long for it. We want to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. And Jesus only took four things seriously. They're big things. Inclusion. Nonviolence. Unconditional, compassionate, loving kindness. That's one thing. And acceptance. That's the original program. And we have a longing for it. Because we know that's the God we actually have. All of us are called to be enlightened witnesses. People who through your kindness and tenderness and focused, attentive love return people to themselves. At Homeboy, we're allergic to the notion of holding the bar up and asking folks to measure up. And there's a reason for that, because our exhausted God never asks that of us, ever. Instead of holding the bar up and asking folks to measure up, we hold the mirror up and tell people the truth, knowing that my truth is your truth, and your truth is a gang member's truth, and it's all the same truth. And here's the truth. You are exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then you watch folks, especially those on the margins, as they become that truth, as they inhabit that truth, and no bullet can pierce it, no four prison walls can keep it out, and death can't touch it because it's huge. But everybody in this room knows that you have to reach in and dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way, that keep people from seeing their truth. In the Acts of the Apostles, they have this line that's intriguing to me. And it says simply, and awe came upon everyone. It suggests that the measure of health in our community may well reside in our ability to stand in awe at what the poor have to carry 
rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. So some years ago, I was invited to speak in Richmond, Virginia, to 600 social workers. And uh, I knew it was an all-day gang in-service from 9 to 5. I figured maybe do the keynote at the beginning, speak at lunch, or maybe, maybe close the day. So I bought my ticket. A week before I was to fly, I pulled the letter out, and to my horror, I discovered that I was to be the only speaker all damn day, <laughs> 9 to 5. And I said to myself, oh, hell no. (laughs) So I invited two homies in, um, Andre and Jose, trainees in our 18-month training program, gang members. I sat them down. I said, look, you're flying with me to Richmond, Virginia at the end of the week. I'd like you to get up and tell your stories. Take your time. Because we got a long-ass day to fill. <laughs> so I'd never heard their stories. And Jose gets up, and uh, he's like 25 years old at the time. A gang member been to prison. In our, he goes through our phases. We have different phases in, in an 18-month program. But at that time, he had landed as a very valuable member of our substance abuse team, a man solid in his own recovery, now helping younger homies with their addiction issues. And... Uh, you know, was in prison, but he also had a long stretch of time as a homeless man and an even longer stretch as a heroin addict. So he gets up in front of these 600 social workers and he says, I guess you could say, my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I think I was six when she looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, 600 social workers audibly gasp. And then he says, it sounds way worse in Spanish. <laughs> and we got whiplash going from a gasp to laugh. I think I was nine, he continued, when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja California. She walks me up to an orphanage and she knocks on the door. And the guy comes to the door and she says... I found this kid and she left me there for 90 days till my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me and my grandmother came and rescued me. My mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine and a lot of things you couldn't. Every day my back was bloodied and scarred In fact, I had to wear three T-shirts to school each day. First T-shirt, because the blood would seep through. Second T-shirt, you could still see it. Finally, the third T-shirt, you couldn't see any blood. Kids at school, they'd make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three T-shirts? Then he stopped speaking so overwhelmed with emotion. And he seemed to be staring at a piece of his story that only he could see. And when he could regain his speech, he said through his tears, I wore three T-shirts. 
well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see them. But now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. My wounds are my friends. After all, how can I help heal the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? And awe came upon everyone. The measure of our compassion lies not in our service of those on the margins, but only in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. For the truth of the matter is this, if we do not welcome our own wounds, we may well be tempted to despise the wounded. I'm going to end with this story. So, uh, before I tell you that story, though, I, I was interviewed once on the Christian Broadcast Network, and this lady was asking me what we do at Homeboy, and I did the same litany that I told you about. I went on and on about tattoo removal and bakery and training and therapy and healing, that it's a community of tenderness. And when I finished the litany, she looked at me and she said, yeah, but... How much time do you spend each day at Homeboy Industries, you know, praising God? I didn't know what to say. So I said, all damn day. And I don't, I don't think she liked that answer very much. But it begs the question, what kind of praise does our exhausted God have any interest in? So it occurs to universities sometimes to force their students to read my book against their will. And I'm I'm not complaining. Um, And so my alma mater, Gonzaga University in Spokane, forced the incoming freshman class to read it as an all-year read, you know. And and so they invited me. And there was going to be a big venue, like a thousand people. And... uh, they said, could you bring two homies with you? And I always do if people pay for it, you know. And so I always pick homies the same way. I pick enemies, rivals, just so that they have to share a hotel room just to mess with them, you know. And, <laughs> and I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing <laughs> gang members panicked in the sky. <clears throat> Not long ago, I took two older homies to Washington, D.C., and we were at LAX, and the guy, I swear to you, dead serious, he says, are we flying Virgin Airlines because it's our first time? (laughs) (coughs) You know, I guess it's a requirement. Uh, We'll we'll be coming home on American. So um, I've done this hundreds of times. You know, I picked a homie, uh, Bobby, an African-American gang member who at the time worked in the bakery, and Mario, who at the time worked in our merchandise store. I've done this so many times, men and women. Um, I've never picked anyone quite like this kid, Mario. He was absolutely petrified of flying. In fact, he was hyperventilating. (laughs) 
we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And so we're at Burbank Airport and in a big bay windows, Southwest Airlines, big planes. But they don't have that hermetically sealed chute that to enter to board the plane. You have to walk out into the tarmac like you're the president. And, and they have the steps that lead to the front of the plane and the steps that lead to the back of the plane. That's the big feature there. And uh, I'm sitting with Mario, and Bobby's off walking somewhere. And our plane arrives. It's early morning. And I, I go, that, that's our plane. <laughs> Literally like that. And I think this kid may die before he actually climbs those stairs, you know. And, and our flight crew arrives, and it's early morning, and two uh, flight attendants, females, with very large cups each of Starbucks coffee, they're schlepping up the front steps. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. Uh, <laughs> There, there they go now. All right, maybe I shouldn't have said that. You know, so <clears throat> I should tell you that Mario, in my 30-year history at Homeboy Industries, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. So he's all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids. And I'd never been in public with him, and so... Uh, at one point, he and I are walking through the airport, and people are like this, you know. And <laughs> mothers are clutching their kids a little more closely, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, if you were to go tomorrow, not tomorrow, yet we're closed tomorrow. If you were to go on Monday and ask anybody there, who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works here, they won't say me. They'll say Mario, who currently sells baked goods over the counter in our bakery. Mario is proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So we get to Gonzaga, and there's a big talk Tuesday night, a thousand people. What they don't tell you is they have nine other talks prior to that. Um, you know, during the day, this class, this class, this meeting, this lunch, this class, all damn day. And um, so I tell Mario and Bobby, I'm not going to speak at any of these. I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. You get up and talk. They were nervous, but they did a good job. Stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind. And honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance Otherwise, you'd get scorched. I would not have survived a day of either of their childhoods. So the nighttime comes, and there are a thousand people there. And I said, I'm going to just change this up on us a little bit. I go, I want you guys to get up. I know you weren't planning to do this, but get up before me and do a little seven-minute thing and each tell your story and then I'll do my thing, and then I'll invite you to stand on either side of me, and we'll field questions. They were terrified because it was such a large number. <coughs> but they did a good job. Then uh, I invite them up, and yeah, yes, ma'am. And so a woman stands. Yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario 
He comes up to the microphone, he clutches the microphone, and, and he's this tall, skinny drink of water, and he's just terrified. Yes. And she goes, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter. They're about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? You know, what advice do you give them? Mario closes his eyes and he clutches the microphone. And I can feel him trembling and I can feel the emotions rising. And he's getting a damn hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. And when suddenly he blurts, I just... As soon as he says those two words, he retreats back to his microphone-clutching, trembling retreat, and I can feel like he is now about to lose the battle with his tears. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry. Why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving. You are kind. You are gentle. You are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand, and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hands, so overwhelmed that this room full of strangers had returned him to himself. And trust me, everyone in that audience also returned to themselves, which shouldn't surprise us, because it's mutual. And I think that's the only praise our exhausted God has any interest in. And so we go to the margins. And before too long, we cease to care whether anyone accuses us of wasting our time. For in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voices of those who sing. We don't go to the margins to make a difference. We go to the margins so that we can hear those voices. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.